I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, I'm Bernard Schwartz, and this is A.L. Kennedy, and this is year two of a series that uh, I've put together, um, in part in collaboration with, um, obviously, the bookshop, but also Queen Mary University. Um, it's an extension of an anthology that we began at the 92nd Street Wise Poetry Center a few years ago upon the Poetry Center's 75th anniversary. Um, writers on recordings um, couldn't be simpler. The Poetry Center has been around since 1939. The audio archive dates to 1949. In fact, it specifically dates to October of 1949 when E.E. E. Cummings read um, for the first time at the 92nd Street Y. And um, uh, an interesting footnote is that the audio engineer was uh, Bella Bartok's son, Peter. He was one of the people who helped figure out uh, the sound system that would be uh, implemented at the, the Y in 49. So from 1949, from October of 1949 in E.E. Cummings, um, till uh, present day, really, we've got just about uh, every major poet and playwright and novelist and journalist and philosopher and classical musician, etc., that um, that you can name. Uh, a number of these are available online, um, and I'll point toward uh, instances where the recordings we're hearing excerpts of are available in full online. Um, in other instances, they're still uh, in the vault. But um, slowly but surely, we continue to bring more and more of the, uh, the audio out. And uh, as of 20 years ago or so, it's also video. So um, we're going to be hearing a, a bit of Tom Stoppard and um, the recording that we'll hear just audio of is, is actually a video online. Um, that's the one program change. Uh, Anthony Burgess is out. Tom Stoppard is in. I hope you don't mind. Um, and uh, the way the way this um, this conversation will work is Allison has chosen from the vast archive some uh, personal selections. Um, Harold Pinter, Stoppard, E. e. Cummings, and Jules Pfeiffer. We're going to talk for a little bit in and among the recordings. Um, I think the recordings maybe total mm, 20 or so, 25 minutes. So it's more of a listening party. Uh, but there will be ample time for conversation and audience questions. This, uh, as I said, is a, we called it uh, the A.L. Kennedy mixtape. I don't know that there is. The, the way that this invitation began is I sort of said to Allison, well, here's the archive, here's the list of names and dates and recordings and who read what, when, who, who, who would you like to hear? And instead of, as is the case on Wednesday and Friday in this series, um, writers picking individual writers to, to talk about. And um, she's chosen four uh, that I think, as I said, no, nobody else would have ever put in combination together. I was trying in preparation for this conversation to try and come up with a, a through line there you can you can group them you can 
get Pinter and Stopper together, you can't quite figure out how the four of them all go together. But then I was reading the news today and what was happening in Helsinki, and I thought they would all have interesting things to say about what was going on um, at, at our, our assignment between, um, between Trump and Putin. Um, I, that, that was the one, but we're not going to go down that path. We're going to focus on Allison and why she chose them. And um, the first recording we're going to hear is, is Harold Pinter, but I think before hearing the recording, it's worth not asking too directly why these four. Allison, your response to the invitation and talking through how far back do these writers go for you as, as influences? Mm. Well, I, we, we've collaborated before, um, going through the archive, and there's, there's a sort of feature on the website which is a, a writer responding to uh, another writer. I had a, the first time I was sent, here are all of the people that we have on tape. Um, the thing that I found extraordinarily moving, this, this is actually my mother's copy of the collected works of E. Cummings. And bizarrely, and I had no reasonable explanation for it, I think because I liked the book, it was a nice size, and I liked the color, and it is very simple language, even if I didn't actually understand more than about 20% of it, or I had understandings that were not accurate, but I liked the music of it. And I could kind of, and I, I carried this around with me when I was four, five, six. Uh, my mother's a primary school teacher, so I could read when I was four. In fact, she was pretty impatient that I should read when I was three. Uh, and I was really educated. Yeah, I, wa I wandered through my childhood holding uh, Wordsworth, who I didn't like. <laughs> but it was, it was a very nice book, small and uh, bound in green cloth. And E. Cummings. Um, so the first time around, the first time of asking, wrote a piece about E. Cummings, and it seemed reasonable, hang on, it seemed reasonable, oh that's better, um, to sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what actually makes a writer write and what actually makes a writer who the writer is, and I think, well, I mean, obviously, if, if one of the first things I was reading along with The Hobbits and The Wind in the Willows is E. Bloody Cummings with all of his squashed together words and ridiculousness, um, particularly reading it now at my age, he's in there. He's in there at a very fundamental level. Uh, and I thought, well, you, you know, I'm, I'm reading this ridiculous who's who of everybody. And I thought, well, I'll pick people who were kind of in at the point where I was being me, I had no idea of writing as anything other than something that I like to do. Because if you obviously you get taught to read and write very young, it, it belongs to you and it's a fun thing that you do. And I like making up stories and writing them down. But when it's at that age, I mean, I, I, I liked going for walks. I didn't think I would earn a living going for walks. Um, I could at this point lie and say, I liked skipping and climbing trees and swimming. I didn't, I couldn't do any of those things. Um, I had very few hobbies. I was a very middle-aged child. Um, so a lot of it was reading and even my mother saying, go outside, and me going, why? <laughs> there are no books out there. Um, I'm much more outdoor now. So what I've chosen are really four of the people who Pinter's probably the, the latest influence, um, and Pfeiffer and E. e. Cummings are probably the earliest. Because I think this idea that people, you know, writers uh, describe their own work and their own writing in the terms of literature is quite a bizarre idea. And 
the way that inspirations are described and influences are described. I mean, the number of people I've been told I read, well, this is clearly a product of you having read blah, 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 and I hadn't read it. I mean, I would go and read it because it would be interesting because I would be told that I was a reflection of them. But that whole game <laughs> is, uh, I th I, you, know, you know, it's fun and it does nobody any harm, but I think if somebody's trying to start writing and they feel that they have to think that way and use those terms and be inspired in that way, probably it would be good to sort of say to them that it's very rare that anybody ever is inspired that way. It's my 10 pence worth. So this is, it's about inspirations, which are really not from any, you know, I don't write poetry. Uh, my poetry is terrible. Uh, in the whole of my writing life, I've probably written about three quite bad poems and about 30 really painfully, hideously embarrassing, no one should ever have to look at these poems, poems. Uh, I don't really write plays, but that's what I fell in love with first, with other people's uh, words. And I certainly am not a cartoonist. Did you, having worked so intensely in, in an audio archive for the last several years, I'm always curious, did you have any, as a child you wouldn't have any curiosity about well, what does this man sound like? Did You liked the typography and yeah. you liked just the word music and did you have any curiosity about, you know, who is this person and, and, and what would he possibly, uh, you wrote in your piece online that, um, you know, at last you get to hear him is that is that something that uh, changed how you read him? You, if you haven't heard E. Cummings, you you will a little bit later. Um, it's kind of not what you would expect. <laughs> it's it's a remarkable, strange, elevated, ecclesiastical, lilting singing delivery, which I don't think anybody would would use today. And r right at the end of the reading, he then says something in his own voice, which I find bizarre as a practitioner that you would read what you've written in your voice in a voice that is not your voice. But no, I'd, I'd never thought of, of authors as, as personalities or people that you would ever come across. Largely because I was a very old, I was a sort of a tiny Edwardian child, so I mainly read dead people. So you weren't going to go to a reading of Nathaniel Hawthorne because that would be horrible. Um, <laughs> So I'd, I'd never come across this as an idea. And I, I remember liking C.S. Lewis and then running out of C.S. Lewis children's books and starting to read C.S. Lewis uh, grown-up books. And they had C.S. Lewis's photograph. And C.S. Lewis was this wonderful, consoling, magnificent voice in my head, interacting with the voices of his characters and my voice reading his voice and the characters' voices. And then he looks like a potato. And I found that so kind of, but no, he can't look like that. That's no harm to him, but surely not. Um, so I was quite affronted by the personality of the author being in the way. And I, I think, you know, um, initials, I think it's part of why I thought, well, okay, if I'm gonna do this thing, I will have initials so I won't be in the way and I will not be there. But I didn't realize, I mean, you know, three times a week I'm doing something like this. Um, this was not explained. I was gonna just be in an ivory study, musing anonymously. You went with initials, but you didn't go all the way. You didn't do lowercase. 
initials. He stopped it. No, no. It was too much. Too, too, too much. And you know, there are still poems in there I don't understand. So I think I need, I need more help. I think Beckett is the only person I've read who can do no punctuation. You kind of have to be really, really good. I have no pretensions to being that good. I went through a phase of not having speech marks, which many people do because they seem to be like an intrusion in your prose. Uh, but fortunately, something somebody wiser sort of said, no, don't do that. It's just confusing. People don't see them. You're seeing them because you're making it. Nobody sees them. They, they just get absorbed. Don't worry about it. Um, or put a dash or do something so the poor reader can just read. <laughs> Well, I mean, not to throw you a curveball, but I think we should hear Cummings so mm, people get a sense, okay. and then we'll 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 uh, we'll go to Pinter. Um, I think, as I said, this is Cummings from October of 1949. This is the first recording in the Poetry Center's archive. This is prior to Cummings learning that there was a lucrative market out there as a presenter, as a public persona. Um, mm -hmm. Later, really between the mid-50s and his death in 62, uh, he, he connects through the Poetry Center with one of the assistants who then becomes the director and establishes a kind of literary circuit. Her name is Elizabeth Cray. And he develops as a performer in the biographies of him you can read that he would uh, pay very particular attention to how he would warm the crowd up and he always had an en encore prepared mm. anticipating the thunderous applause at the same time you read in the biographies uh, the and in his correspondence as well the nervousness with which he attended these public outings he was um, at that point a kind of cultish figure. People had memorized his verse. They would mouth it along with him. But this is a, a little bit, a little bit before that. This was um, his first appearance at the Poetry Center. He'd written a letter to the director saying he would come if he didn't have to have dinner with any of the donors. Afterward, uh, later on, he refused to sign books, but he signed books at, the, at this one. And um, this is a straight, straight poetry reading. He reads about. Um, most of the poems are short, so it reads between 20 and 25 poems. This, this first one is a short one. It's called when, it doesn't have a title, but the first line is when God decided to invent. When God decided to invent everything, he took one breath bigger than a circus tent and everything began. When man determined to destroy himself, he picked the walls of shell and finding only why, smashed it into because. Did that sound like anybody's expectation of what E. Cummings would uh, have sounded like? 
I love it when people pronounce the, the H after the W in when and where. It's uh, specific. But he, I mean, he, he, he definitely knows that he's dense and he's kind of putting it out there. I mean, I can sort of, I can see the logic, but it, it is bizarre. Although certainly, I mean, he, he is so kind of challenging on the page that he is somebody that if he read himself to you, you would know what he meant more probably. So it makes sense that he would be like a performance poet eventually. But yeah, it's such a strange, slightly elevated way of speaking. Um, he reads the, the seemingly prophetic verse in the same way he reads his, his comedic verse. We don't, I, I suppose, you, from yeah. distance you could laugh at some of the ones that we've chosen, but there are ones that are meant to be yeah, entertainments, and he reads them in the same voice. And um, he sounds to me like John Hausman. I don't know, it's sort yeah. of like... I mean, I, there's certainly, I mean, even I remember when I was younger, there, 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 was a, there was the idea that when you read poetry, you didn't read it in a way that made it in any way bearable for the listener. Um, and that's, that's kind of gone away. And as you say, and, it, and it's a thing that you wear if you're nervous, you have a way of doing it. And in a way, the sort of tremulousness hides if your voice is shaking. But I just, I just remember as a kid, the breath big as a circus tent. That's kind of always been my image of... If there is a God, it'll be that, the breathingness. He just sideswipes you with these uh, descriptions, which is kind of what you always aim to do, whatever voice he's using. One of the um, interesting archival bits about this recording is, and you can, you can hear it online, there is sporadic applause. The audience, I think, isn't quite sure when to clap and when not to clap it's unclear if they're clapping for at that point what would have been some of his greatest hits it's a little bit puzzling listening to it but he doesn't really do the last line as if it is so i mean he's he's not helping I no mean, it's, could, it's 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 unusual and, and and one of the one of the myths surrounding the poetry center that people like e, e. cummings would obviously give their own readings at the poetry center but in the 40s and 50s, it was, um, it was the place that you heard all of the uh, major modern poets and was the first place that Dylan Thomas read in America. And, and the myth is that when Dylan Thomas first comes over in February of 1950 to read at the Poetry Center, E.E. E. Cummings is in the audience and it has such an effect on him that, that he can't go home. He says goodnight to his wife and walks the streets. I don't know how true that is, but there there is something maybe in that idea of uh, of casting a spell. I think Cummings, in, in, in comparison to Dylan Thomas, for those of you who have heard recordings of Dylan Thomas either doing poetry or the plays, uh, Cum Cummings falls short, but it's in this same yeah. style. Yeah, yeah, it's um, still very big. Yeah. Very, and I don't know... If, if he falls short because he falls short as a as a performer of his work, or if or if it's the work it's if it's the work itself, but I think it makes a lot of sense hearing Cummings why he would be as taken with someone like Dylan Thomas as he was. Do you want to hear the second one? Sure. Okay. Dying is fine. Dying is fine, but death. Oh, baby, I wouldn't like death if death were good. For when, instead of stopping to think,
you begin to feel of it, dying's miraculous. Why? Because dying is perfectly natural. Perfectly, putting it mildly, lively. But death is strictly scientific and artificial and evil and legal. We thank thee, God Almighty, for dying. Forgive us, O life, the sin of death. See, that came to an end. That was like, yeah, we know. <laughs> and that's the first time I ever read anything that, because I was very young, nobody was talking to me about dying. So that was the first time anybody had presented me with thoughts on not being around anymore. And you thought, yeah, dying is fine, death. Yeah, when, when you're five, it <laughs> seems quite far away. And, and it, as it turned out, it was quite far away. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of bounce to, to his reading of that poem that puts me in mind of um, an American poet named Gwendolyn Brooks who uh, read quite often Poetry Center beginning as early as, as, the, as the early 1950s and then until her death in the late 90s. But her, her poems are sort of, they're, they're more kitchen table poems. They're, they're populated with um, philosophical sentiment but uh, couched in the characters that she saw in the life teeming all around her in Chicago. And the virtue of having an archive like this is you find these associations that you would have never uh, come upon unexpectedly. There, there's, so, there's something about the music in these, in these readings or in the style of a given time period um, that puts you in mind of other writers, even, even when the content of what they're doing couldn't, couldn't be more different. Um, the, la the, last, the last one that we've, we've got upcoming from that evening is uh, a more personal poem. It's a longer poem, but it still kind of manifests as a, a sort of seemingly an elegy for his father, but it, 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 it maintains this kind of distance. Would you agree? I mean, when yeah, I are mean, you quite taken by the emotion of it or the sentimentality? Just the strangeness and the confusion of it, and there's a kind of compassion, but as you say, a distance. Um, and, you know, even again, at that very early age, I had a terrible relationship with my father, which was going to get worse, and it kind of felt like exactly how you would describe a father who was kind of not as advertised. So that one, and particularly the first line, my father moved through dooms of love, just... It's one of those times when the connections between words and the context created by words is kind of great, far greater than the sum of the parts, because it's almost unintelligible, but it's completely, oh boy, yes, that's, that's, I, know, I know that, which I think is the job of poetry. Do you recall re reading this particular poem as a child? It's in there, yeah. yeah. Knowing later on that it's an elegy for his father who had died you know, a decade before in, in a, a kind of gruesome mm. train car collision. Mm. Does that change the way that you uh, 
relate to the poem? Oh, they're all different. I mean, uh, you, you know, I, I loved when I was tiny, she being brand new, which is which is entirely about sexual intercourse. I, I found it amazingly gleeful and entertaining while not understanding a syllable of it. Um, so that, that they all mean something different now. But again, I think good writing, it won't be as extreme as that. You, you, you can return to good writing and see a different angle or see a different viewpoint or suddenly have had an experience that seems to give you a perspective through it. I mean, my original understanding of the father poem was, I think at that age I probably still had a tenderness for him that I was going to lose. So the kind of grief within it and the tenderness of it and the reaching out to somebody who's unreachable was more appropriate to to where I was. And obviously it's appropriate to what he was writing. But presumably you're writing a poem from your own personal experience so that somebody else can, you know, you're meeting halfway within the words. So if the reader has not had their father be squashed by a car, they'll still, you know, you, you've got to transcend whatever your specific inspiration was. Trying to get over the fact that you're reading E. Cummings at age six. You're not understanding it, but I mean, it's that's it's he's not complicated vocabulary. He's really not. There's, Did your mother know that you had her copy? Of- she, I think she just found it hilarious. But they, I, they were so desperate that I should be precocious, and it kind of worked. Uh, my my father would give me little half glasses of red wine and say, "Hmm, it tastes of blackcurrants," and I would go, Bleh, "It tastes of earwax." Um, so some of it took. Some of it didn't take, and I, I was probably a horrible child as a result. Uh, Were you an only child? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they shouldn't have bred at all. They, they <laughs> certainly shouldn't have had more than one. Terrible family of depressives and epileptics and people with fused vertebrates. Just like a big collection of stuff that you just want to take out of the gene pool. Um, so uh, so I've I've made sure of that. Um, was Cummings yeah. being on their bookshelf? I think you said it. It's from. It's a 1970 edition. Cummings dies in '62. His reputation kind of ebbs and flows depending on yeah. so many different things. But I, I wonder. You wouldn't necessarily know this as a six-year-old, but they, I, I'm curious yeah. to know what your parents thought of E. Cummings. If you had picked this up, it's possible you picked this up kind of randomly. But you yeah, know. I do. I just like the way it looked. But then I stayed with it and I liked reading it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got it's got a force with the with the musicality and the rhythm. You know, if you can read English at all, the music of it will play in you, even if the meaning is really fragmented. My mother was sort of interested, and she you know, she explained to me that you know you're you're not really allowed to do not having a capital letter, and that kind of breaks the rules. But you know he's allowed to because he's but so that was sort of interesting that I picked somebody who broke rules because <laughs> we had a lot of rules. So maybe that's you know kind of why I liked him. But we we were a reading family, and it was an intellectual left wing uh, university type. Family. Both my parents were working class who'd educated themselves into into the middle class, so it was it was that kind of family. There were lots of naked students. It was the seventies. Uh, the Queen Mother came. She was the Chancellor for a bit of the university. The Queen Mother came. They would keep her gin topped up so that it never looked as if she'd drunk any. The naked students would come and protest, and she would smile drunkenly at them, and they would run off having not offended her. <laughs> So it was all quite bizarre. So again, the people that I've chosen, they all acknowledge the bizarreness of reality and the confusion of being human, the strangeness of politics particularly. 
I mean, if, we, if we've got time, I'll read the Cummings uh, political speech, which could have come out of today. It's, uh, it's extraordinary that nothing ever changes. And again, I was growing up in Dundee and aware, particularly during the 70s, nobody cares what happens in Dundee. So this was not big news because it's Dundee. Now it has the V&A, so it's, now it exists. It's very beautiful. But our local government was so corrupt. I mean, nobody in local government ever actually gets arrested. You have to be so bad at being corrupt to be arrested en masse because obviously you buy off the police. But I, I grew up with multiple councillors being arrested, the Lord Provost, you know, the Lord Mayor arrested. And there was a sense that everybody I was reading was kind of, rendered me unsurprised by that. You know, nobody's trustworthy. It's all a bit bizarre. Trust no one. You can protest. That's also a bit bizarre. You may be doing it for terrible reasons. You may be doing it terribly for good reasons. So there, there wasn't a lot of black and white which is probably quite nice. Other than there was always this sort of, you could understand that there were shades of gray, but you could still be outraged by cruelty. Yeah. There's a definite, you know, we're all on team civilization and team compassion, but everything's messed up. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was a very cynical middle-aged five-year-old with a mystical ability to pick the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest which disappeared by the time I was about eight. And just, life was never good after that. Right, you focused a lot on your fifth and sixth year, and now here we are in the present day. And yeah. We'll do another one of these and have you pick an influence. Which, sure, know. sure, sure. But I, I, I almost feel like we should, we should skip the long father elegy and move to something a bit more political, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't... Um, I Just hearing Pinter's voice, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll put people in a different frame of mind. Yeah. Um, Big should, old angry Pinter. Should we, should we play a little something? This is, um, mm -hmm. this is Harold Pinter from 1989, uh, a voice which I, I would guess a lot of you are familiar with, um, but it's good to hear again. He, uh, he appeared at the Poetry Center off and on from, from the early 60s. He did in the late 60s a reading of his own favorite English poems, uh, John Donne, Thomas Hardy, um, which I've listened to and is strange, wonderful, um, and he reads them with as much earnestness as, as you can imagine, bringing them within an inch of their lives, I think. Uh, but this is, this is him introducing uh, a reading and then uh, an excerpt from a, a one act called The Hot House which is set in, um, well, I mean, bit, depending on... A bit longer on, than Monarch, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, depending on how you look at it, it's a, some kind of institution. Yeah, it's sort of very strange. Well, it's a very strange but very familiar kind of madhouse that's also political. Um, it was on at the Trafalgar Studios a couple of years ago. You might have seen it. It's a cracking, cracking but not often performed play with uh, obviously electro electrotherapy because it's Pinter, so the lights go on and off every now and then while somebody's getting strapped in. I think after we, after we listen to Pinter, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about yeah. the differences as, as performance goes between a playwright and an actor and, 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 and a yeah. poet. But, um, and he's, he's reading this magnificent, you know, the director of the institution, and it, it's just a beautiful, full-flight, narcissist, 
denying reality, just wonderful kind of performance of, of, of that very familiar mindset. Something to note too before we listen to it is, and this is a familiar theme, it, it'll, uh, it'll come up again uh, on Wednesday when I talk to Nicola Barker about T.S. Eliot. It is often the case that, um, in fact, Eliot directly addresses this in, in the introductory remarks he makes in the recording uh, from 1950 that we'll hear on Wednesday, but um, Pinter originally wrote this play in the late 1950s, and here he is uh, reading it 40 years later, having, I don't know if put in the drawer is, is the right term, but um, brought it out again in the mid-80s and it had a production in which he starred. But often you find in these archival recordings that um, writers are reading stuff that goes way, way back, and um, I, don't, I don't know that that's still the case. I mean, there's a lot to be said about the difference now between sort of the phenomenon of, um, of uh, reading circuits, but I don't mm -hmm. know that if you showed up the, you know, book launch for your, I mean, the oh, idea right, of a book yeah, launch even, yeah. but it's to say, and you said, well, I'm, I'm really fond of this short story I wrote 30 years ago. Yeah. I feel like I finally cracked it and I'm going to read it for you all tonight. Um, yeah. That sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. But anyway, let's hear, yeah, let's yeah. hear, this is about five minutes of Harold Pinter. I'm going to read um, two things tonight. The first, an extract from um, a, a play I wrote in 1959, 30 years ago, called The Hot House. It's not terribly well known. And then, um, as has been said, my uh, very short one-act play, which I wrote in 1984, He, now, he the hothouse takes place in an institution in which there is a large, uh, there seems to be a large body of inmates, although we never see them. The uh, head of this institution is called Colonel Root, and he has two assistants. Lush and Gibbs. And it's um, Lush who is in the room with him on this occasion in this scene. It is Christmas Day. My cake! We haven't cut the cake. My God, it's nearly midnight. Right down the middle. I remember the day my walls used to be hung with Christmas cards. I used to walk knee-deep in presents. All my aunties and uncles popping in for a drink, a log fire in the grate, bells on the Christmas trees, garlands, flowers, floral decoration, music, flowers, floral decoration, laughter. I didn't notice a card from you, did I? Didn't expect it either. 
because you've no sense of decorum. It sticks out a mile. No heart. It's not so much the language. It's the attitude of mind that's nasty, unwholesome, putrid. Well, here you are. Have a piece of this cake. Go on, eat it. <coughs> what are you doing? That's my cake. I can't. That's my Christmas cake. You can't spit out my Christmas cake. Stuff it. You've insulted me. You've insulted the cook. And you've insulted Jesus Christ. <laughs> We've got no room for unhealthy minds in this establishment. Muck and slush. Lush, Colonel. I said you'd better watch your step. Everyone had better watch their step. I don't like the look of things. You can't trust a soul. And there's something going on here that I haven't quite gotten onto. There's something funny afoot. I can feel it. Some people think I'm old, but oh no, not by a long chalk. I've got second sight. I can see through walls. I don't mean that that's second sight, seeing through walls. I mean, I've got second sight and I can see through walls. <laughs> and your knowledge of phytotomy, sir. Well, that's more than a passing acquaintance. I can see right through them. I can hear a whisper in the basement. I didn't waste my youth. I exercised my faculties to the hilt. And I spent a lot of time pondering, pondering. For instance, this stupid business of the world going round. It's all a lot of balls. If the world was going round, we'd be falling about all over the room. Take it back, I guess, to, to, you know, to, to your development as a, as a reader and a writer, but also as a, as a performer. I mean, you, you, um, I'm curious to know when you were first sort of saw a Pinter play. You probably saw a Pinter play before you read a Pinter play. Well, no, because when I, when I was growing up, uh, one of the other joys of Dundee was that large public buildings would usually burn down for financial reasons quite regularly. And... <laughs> Eventually, we didn't have a theatre, so I, 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 sat, I would buy Penguin Black Classics. Um, I was the kind of kid at school, I would win book prizes, and they would all be uh, these, these black-spined classics or, or master playwrights, or this is the Matthew and Playwright series. So I read plays and read plays and read plays and read plays, and until I was a teenager and I finally got to go to the theatre, um, it was all in my head, and then you had to be better than my head. But I loved, even in that, forcing somebody to eat something, something jolly in a completely violent, violent manner. He is just magnificent at uh, at dialogue, and I was I was fascinated by words that didn't mean anything and did mean something, and just created spaces around them that were so disturbing. I mean, sometimes too disturbing. Sometimes you, you see Pinter on stage and it's too horrible. It's genuinely still shocking. Um, and I mean, if you're Pinter, you can read 30-year-old work. But, you know, as I, as I say, that the Hothouse was only on a couple of years ago and it was completely contemporary. 
if, if, if you're great. I mean, if I read 30-year-old work, it's almost physically unreadable because it's rhythmically so flawed and it's immensely embarrassing. So I try to avoid it. Um, I mean, there's commercial reasons for having to read the thing that you're supposed to be selling. But yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to really nail it to be able to read something that's old. But he's, you know, his output is just so stellar. And it, he's great at, I, I love somebody performing and obviously there were vast silences. He's perfectly happy being on stage being Harold Pinter. And you will be watching him being Harold Pinter. And that's great for you and he doesn't have to rush. And that, you know, is extraordinary. And I mean, having seen him on stage, you know, he's, he just understood how that worked, which playwrights don't necessarily understand. But I mean, he's, he's giving people words that they can say and words that they can understand and produce. And it all kind of fits. Um, what did you see him in? Uh, I saw him reading himself. I've never seen him in a Pinter play, but I've, I've saw him. That's the thing. I mean, the influence, like you never know what an influence will be. I don't know if his dialogue has ever influenced my dial, I would wish, but I don't doubt it. Uh, I have a pair of purple shoes, though. And every now and then I wear my purple shoes. And I think I've done a couple of events wearing purple shoes because Harold Pinter wore purple shoes. Sort of makes me feel like I've made it, um, and it's terribly, terribly sad. But the thing when when you're a young writer and it's and it's Pinter, I could have gone up and said I'd spent the last thirty years reading your work and you kept me alive when there was no theatre and God bless you, sir. I I didn't go near the man. With with Stoppard, I'd be, by the time I was in the same room with Tom Stoppard, I could say exactly the same thing because I kind of understood that that's what you're supposed to do. But I was too too young. I was too young with Muriel Spark as well. It's just like, you're Muriel Spark. What could I possibly say? Just, I'm glad you're alive. Only yeah. I'm going to say that quietly inside. But both, both of those people really kept me going. You said something before that I think is something that, that we as, as, as readers and, and as writers looking to have an effect on readers think a lot about which is it had to be better had to be better than what it was in your head the idea that you performed pinter for yourself in your own imagination before mm. you ever saw a, a pinter play which presumably is true of anything that you've ever read that idea yeah, um, and I certainly, when I'm talking to people who, who want to write or are beginning to write, I mean, I almost always say something along the lines of, well, the person that who's reading you could be reading anything or could be imagining anything or could be remembering anything or could be meditating upon the object of their affection. Uh, you have to be better than that. And the corollary of that would be you have to be able to create something which can be so manifest that in a way it is a three-dimensional, I mean, reading a play script, you, 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 you have minor stage dread, there's almost nothing there. I mean, it's extraordinarily powerful dialogue to kind of present a scene setting and give you a delivery. With, with prose, you're giving people more help. My God, this cost £1.95. <sighs> Those with the net, it's got net on the bottom. The net book agreement was still in place. We were a civilized country. Um, oh, and he's wearing the purple shoes. Um, so you, you know, you're you're trying to 
really construct something which will be greater than the sum of the parts and leave, you know, there will always be gaps, but you're planning for the gaps. I mean, he above all is planning for the gaps, but the, the planning that you put in place around the gaps means it will be the correct gap and whatever you put into it will be so intimate that everything completely fires because you're never going to get 100% complete structure formed out of language. But you're only aiming for 95% because the 5% is what will make it harpoon them in the brain, which is what you're looking for in a lovely way. Before, uh, before we play the, the stoppered recording mm. in which uh, he doesn't read, he, he, he goes on for about three minutes questioning the idea of why he's there to read uh, and then reads, reads very compellingly from, from a number of his plays, mm. a recording that is online. I wanted to, I wanted to ask about something that, uh, that you had mentioned to me earlier which is the work that you do with vocal coach, which is not something that I have come across with prose writer, mm-hmm. um, maybe ever. Um, would you say something about how you, how, well, it's part of your process, isn't it? That, that you... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the very quick version. I mean, obviously now and as of, you know, People, people can have a, have had a, a long career within which they've always been expected to read. And obviously, if you can't read comfortably and you can't create a process that is positive for you, there's an interaction with the, the voice that you have in your head that tells you you've forgotten shopping or that you're looking fat and ugly this evening or whatever your interior voice says and there are varieties of tones within that voice there's a voice on the page and there are varieties of tones within that and there's there's a voice out loud if within your practice you can make all of those be positive it's easier to describe the downside where you i have met on several occasions or, or performed with people on several occasions who were so uncomfortable with the process of reading their own work that they no longer believed in it because they couldn't deliver, you know, if, if I'm delivering my words to you and I look, I mean, so you're supposed to look up and interact in some way, but some people just read like that. Um, but if, if you look up and everybody looks as if they've been, you know, hit in the head with a spanner and they're just waiting for you to stop so they can leave, it has a ghastly effect. I mean, there's a wonderful bit, there's a reproduction of a lecture by Pinto where he talks about being booed after a performance vigorously and the best booing that he's ever heard and they do 43 curtain calls until there are only two people left booing vociferously but I think by that point he could handle that what you want is for every element of your performance to be a positive experience that assists the other experiences and accidentally because I was doing lots of workshops and losing my voice although I was a drama student I went off and did more voice work and suddenly it was much easier to write on the page. And I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, if my mind knows my body would be capable of saying this, it comes down my arm more easily and turns into something someone else could say. And since then I've spent decades working with people to look at the physical manifestation of voice, which apart from anything else can can remove overwriting because a sort of true voice coming out of your body is operating just above the level of screaming and tends not to have lots of purple prose attached. Um, but the practice that I uh, work from, if you Google him, there's a guy called Alfred Wolfson, was a voice, 
was interested in voice was a soldier in the First World War in the trenches on the German side. He was injured. He was screaming. The people around him were injured, screaming. And I think because of his background in voice, at that point he decided when you're screaming for your life, your, body is your voice is completely embodied. You're screaming with all of yourself to be saved. And he devoted his life to making people fully expressed vocally before they were screaming for their life, um, which obviously has personal, political, bloody blah implications. There's a Jewish guy fled in the 30s, taught in London, worked with Rada a little bit, but he was all about the voice being living and it almost being physically incapable unless you're already dying a bit to say certain things. I mean, obviously he was fleeing what the Nazis were doing and he was fleeing what the meaning of what they were saying was. But, the, and you can listen to recordings of these guys. If you listen to Hitler or you listen to Himmler or you listen to these people speaking, their voices are the voices of people who are already full of death. And he was terrified of the very sound of them. So he was pushing towards that. Um, so yeah, once, once or twice a year I go off and work with voice. But I, if, if you talk to other writers about it, their, their little eyes get sparkly about it. But we're kind of not allowed to be physically present. And they go, oh yeah, guy, I, I, well, I go to festivals and at breakfast you talk to people. This is how you get influenced by other writers. You're eating bacon five o'clock in the morning. And I'm rabbiting on about voice work. And I met this guy a year and a half later, and he said, I, I did, I went to a voice specialist, and my, my wife came home, and she said, you look amazing, you look authoritative and confident. <sighs> and I said, and did you go back? He went, no, I didn't. <laughs> was, uh, you suppose, I don't know. Uh, I, just, I tend to go back. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by that, really. Is that uh, part of the drafting of new work or independent of it? I think everything you do, if you're going to integrate your practice into all of your life, then everything you do will integrate into your practice. And having found out by accident if I worked on my voice, my written work changed. Or my agent would say, this feels different. Have you gone off and done something? Go, yeah, I've just spent a week hooting. Oh, right, that'll be it then. I mean, practically speaking, if you have to talk a lot or if I have to go and do a radio essay and it's useful if I only have to take 10 breaths instead of 20, you know, th there are things that are just practically about how do I do radio work if I'm doing readings, if I'm doing workshops. At one point I was doing about 17 workshops a week. You just lose your voice. So some of it was just physical training. But if you can come on stage as a package, you see, I'm standing up straight. If you can come on stage as a package and feel this is the work that came to be me to be expressed. It's not that I'm lovely or wonderful. I mean, this is maybe the best manifestation of me there is, and I'm backing away from, you know, not sullying it with myself. But here it is, and I'm placing it before you. And there's not that complication of somebody coming on and being nervous which just makes you nervous and then they get nervous and we're, we're group animals and then it's just this horrible maelstrom of, you know, I've, I've seen a poet take poems that he has read unsuccessfully, crumple them up and throw them behind him. You're just watching somebody commit intellectual suicide. <laughs> and it's like, surely to God, maybe you'd go off and just be able to be happy there. And then everybody would be happy and it wouldn't be about you. It's actually less about you because you, you, you're, you're sort of less noticeable. But that's not how people train writers.
And obviously, you know, all the language that we describe literature with is musical, rhythmical, the language of out loudness. And yet we don't train ourselves using that. And Stoppard, who's going to go on and on about how he can't read, and I, you know, we did a marathon reading of, uh, with lots of other people, wonderful people, uh, of uh, If This Is a Man. Again, he went on and on about how terrible he was at reading while practicing to the point where when he did the performance, he read ex astonishingly. And that again is available online. I think he's, he reads The Saved and The Lost because he has respect. He's somebody at the top of his game who could just say, sod you, I'm Tom Stoppard. And he's still turning up saying, but I want to do my, you know, I want to do my best, which is how you keep on being sod you, I'm Tom Stoppard, because you keep trying. And I mean, I've never met anybody who was great at what they do, who didn't keep trying to do the best on any given occasion, depending on what was required of them. It's also really funny. Yeah. Well, you're, you're here in the recording. Um, this is 2000 and 2001. One of the things that is, that is either fascinating or tedious about the Poetry Center is the relationships we have with writers and, and, and the frequency with which they return to our stage and their uh, often elusiveness. So part of the applause, I think, is the uh, long-awaited appearance on the Poetry Center stage of someone like Tom Stoppard. Since 2001, uh, me and my predecessors have been asking for him to come back. Uh, we've gotten close a couple of times. He hasn't been back. He has a new play or it'll make its New York premiere this fall. Maybe he'll do another reading, maybe he won't. His response has always been sort of coy. That coyness uh, comes through on, on, on the recording. Uh, Primo Levi, since you mentioned him as somebody who, for, for no good reason, never, never uh, appeared at the Y. Uh, he made a trip to New York in the early 1980s and made appearances elsewhere. One of the, the footnotes to the center is always um, who came, who came again and again, and, 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 and who, for a variety of reasons, um, never did grace that stage. But here's Tom Stoppard uh, introducing his reading uh, from 2001. My goodness, thank you for such an exceptionally warm welcome. I'd like to thank uh, Mel as well for gracious and generous words. Um, I'm delighted, and I also feel honored to join the long and distinguished list of uh, writers who've preceded me here. I can hear my own echo, which is beginning to bother me, but not as much as it might be bothering you. How, how am I doing so far uh, as a sound test? Uh, that's, that's honest, is it? I'm, I'm doing, this, is, this is good? All right. Um, generally, um, writers come here and they read from their works, and um, that's mostly how the time is filled. I've never done such an evening before. I have dipped into something I've written to illustrate a point during a talk. I've never advertised myself as somebody who will come and read from his work, I've always thought of it as being uh, the soft option. I thought, well, you know, um, anybody can do that. I have to go out there and think fast and answer questions. <laughs> However, about a year or two ago, I was asked to give a lecture in London 
And this particular lecture fr frightened me so much that I actually wrote it down and uh, typed it and took it along with me to read out loud. And for the first time, of course, I, was, I arrived without a trace of nervousness. I knew exactly what I was going to say and how I was going to say it, and there it was. It was going to be an absolute cakewalk. About 30 seconds into my lecture, I realized for the first time that reading out loud from a script was a skill which I had not acquired. <laughs> <clears throat> It, it, it was a horrible moment, and this little voice kept saying in my ear, stop gabbling, stop gabbling, um, and, and, and look at them, or look at the page. I didn't know what I was doing. So, this is by way of self-exculpation in advance. Um, I have, I, I've brought some things, and, um, <laughs> the, 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 we're going to be here, you know, till about nine o'clock. Um, <laughs> The, the period um, which uh, are set aside for questions um, will be either 40 minutes or five. Um, and the other thing is, um, do... Have you had playwrights who read from their work? Because I don't do voices. Um, <laughs> yeah, the things that the things that he brought included uh, scenes from Arcadia and Coast of Utopia before it had been produced anywhere. Several years, in fact, and also the first thing that he reads is. Scenes from Cahoots Macbeth, which um, he had written uh, for a, a playwright and actor named Pavel Cahoot in, uh, in the 1970s. One of the interesting things that he goes on about, he, he continues to clear his throat charmingly for another few minutes, is that that play opens with exclusively dialogue from Shakespeare. He skips the scenes in Cahoots Macbeth, which are Macbeth, and he keeps asking the audience, you know, should, should one be credited for artfulness when all you're doing is incorporating, you know, another, another's work. But it is, it is an example, too, of something the Poetry Center is known for, which, which is writers trying out new material. Uh, at, the same, at the same time, they're often trying out old material, but also a, commi a commitment to coming on a very public stage and, and, and reading political work, which I think is, is also true of the last writer that you've, you've chosen. Um, there, there are writers who are personalities, there are writers who are giving kind of public performance, and then there are, there are these political statements. I mean, I think Pfeiffer in 71 is yeah. someone who is, um, is doing all three. Before we listen to, to, to Jules Pfeiffer, uh, I'd love to hear how you came upon Jules Pfeiffer, uh, if you were six or slightly older. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm curious to know if anybody here, are, are you familiar with the work of Jules Pfeiffer? Has anybody, yeah. have you heard, you've heard of Jules? He used to be in the, Observ in the Observer, but this is a long time ago, when I was five or six. Do you want to tell them who, first yeah, of all, where, yeah. how you encountered him and then who he is? Yeah, well, I mean, just, just to sort of finish up Stoppard, um, 
I mean, he did, he did kind of summarize the, the physical difficulties that you have if you are reading your work at all. Who do you look at? How do you look at the page? How do you keep your place on the page? All of these things that you, you have to make disappear. But I mean, he correctly identified every single thing that will freak you out. But I've always admired also the manner in which he lived his life. And obviously, he's very he's normally very subtly political. But I mean, when, when we were practicing torture light, I mean, he wrote a fantastically funny but hideously disturbing uh, one-act play to be performed for Amnesty um, about torture using the acronym PIZZA. You know, he did, and that's, again, if you think about influences, that, that I loved Stevenson's work, I loved Chekhov's work, but I loved what they did in the world. Um, and again, Pinter did things in the world with his words. Uh, Stoppard does things in the world and is... In the world of writing and theatre, I have never heard a story about Stoppard being unpleasant, which just doesn't happen. He never seems to have had an off day. I mean, that there are only unsolicited good stories about Stoppard. My experience of Stoppard is, you know, he just fed me all day, which is the sight. You know, I, I look as if I need feeding. Uh, most people actually don't physically feed me. He just spent all day being worried about delivering his lines and feeding me. So I can testify, he's a nice man. That's what nice people do is they feed me. They look at me and they think, oh no, you need feeding. I must feed you. This, I'll just hold up the cover. This is my childhood copy. It's actually 1957, I think, copy of 666. Just the cover, that's the shape I was. That round-shouldered, I'm not even gonna look at you vaguely directly shape. And I just identified with the cover. I think this was my dad's book, I'm not sure. It doesn't have a name in it, so I think it's my dad's not rather than my mother's. Pfeiffer began you know, writing political humor about Eisenhower. He, he's been a cartoonist for a very long time. R wrote initially his, his, his first solo cartoon was, was sort of a, a little kid, but already the kid was very wise and all the grown-ups were kind of out of control. And by the time he gets to 666, which was just the title of his kind of laterally or, or very directly political cartoons, um, it, it was called 666. And I just identified with all of it. I mean, I'll, I'll read you. He, he's going to read some bits, but I'm just going to read. <laughs> Again, he, very often it's a single... In this case, it's a, it's a child, but you, you'll see these beautifully drawn, lightly drawn. His back catalogue is just heartbreakingly wonderful. And he did, he did sort of Bond Désiné before it was very fashionable, noir Bond Désiné. Um, and they'll just kind of, it's a sort of face looking into the camera. And this is a, a, a round-shouldered, tiny girl looking into the camera. And th this one just, it was my first experience of visceral identification in, in an artistic creation. You know, I could kind of go with The Hobbit and everything, but this, this was actually people who were like me and who weren't going to go on quests and, and weren't representing Christian values in a land of fawns. Um, so I'll just... <laughs> so I'll, I'll just read this. I, I will not read it in, America, in an American accent, although obviously it should be. So I was standing on the corner waiting for somebody to cross me because I'm not allowed to cross by myself. And this lady comes by and she says, here is a bubblegum sample. Do you chew this brand? And I says, I don't like bubblegum. So the lady takes out a pad and she starts writing and then she says, 
Why don't you like it? Is it the design of the wrapper? And I says, no, it's because I can't blow bubbles. So she writes that down on her pad and then she says, how would you like a bubble gum which was guaranteed to blow bubbles? And I says, I don't know. I can't whistle through my fingers either. And I can't cross the street by myself. And my teachers say I don't try. And when we play games, I'm always it. And I'm never allowed to watch what I want. And my father keeps calling me by my older sister's name. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm crying like mad. And this lady is writing away on her pad. And she's crying too. And I say, so you see, it has nothing to do with your bubble gum. It's me. It's all me. And I'm shouting and crying, and the lady is writing away, and a crowd comes along, and some big guy says, is this lady bothering you, girly? And the crowd turns ugly, so the lady gets very nervous, and she starts handing out bubblegum to everybody, and she drops her pad in the street, and she's asking everybody, why don't you like it? Is it the design of the wrapper? And nobody knows what she's talking about. So then I went home. <laughs> So that's kind of one of his typical children. And I, I just, there's, there's a lot about the bomb, and I kind of knew we were all going to die within four hours, but I wasn't very good on the detail of the bomb. But just these sad, and obviously he has Bernard, his kind of round-shouldered, pre-henpecked, uh, that, that, is, that is Bernard, uh, whose life is an entire kind of failure. And I just thought, yeah, somebody in America is, is drawing the world as it is. You know, the Disney thing. I never got Disney. Disney terrified me. Disney was like nuclear levels of insane happiness. It's like, how can you possibly smile that much? Yeah, this is what the world looks like. It's not, hello, Minnie. No, that's just strange. Um, so yeah, this just made me happy and is kind of battered about and mangled because again, I was, I was wondering, it was like a little kind of traveling library. You know, I always had one or two under an armpit or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're well looked after for having been manhandled for 30, 40 years. Uh, but yeah, and he's just, if you read his political writing about the different presidents that he had to draw, so find a funny way of drawing. Like he had great trouble with the LBJ because he kind of didn't exist. Obviously, he was saying terrible things, but he couldn't think of a way to, to draw him. And obviously, Nixon was fantastic, but he felt bad about how fantastic Nixon was. But he's very, very prescient, kind of about everything. So he's, he's fantastic to read. And his, his back catalogue is available and obviously huge, having, having drawn beautifully. But he kind of draws, I think, by the time he's drawing as a as an adult doing the kind of cartoons that he wanted. And he, he was syndicated, and you could take his cartoons or not take his cartoons. The thing you couldn't do was alter them. You could have them or not have them, but you couldn't change them. Um, by the time he's at that point, I, I was saying he, he kind of draws the sort of people who would dance Bob Fosse choreography, often in a lovely way, but also he has a sort of top hat and tails guy who dances, but he's doing the Fred Astaire, which is the Fred Astaire, I dance through my life and commit to nobody. And I just dance, dance, dance faster and faster, not having relationships, never really committing to anything, not quite believing anything, dancing, dancing, dancing. So he has these beautiful dancers for terrible reasons. And that's quite, you know, in a, in a way it's kind of Jewish jokes with cartoons, but then there's this whole kind of strange, top layer and hearing his voice which i'd never heard you you he, he sounds exactly he is as like himself and as i expected Z cummings was not 
that's like, oh my God, that's Pfeiffer. And he's just, the timing is there that he puts in the delays between frames. He just understands how to, how to be deadpan, how to work with an audience that's physically there en masse, how to work with a one-to-one -one audience. How he knows funny. And obviously all of these people, even Cummings kinda, I just, I've always liked funny. And people who know how to do funny, but he's kind of, and again, New York, I always, because you know, the Marx Brothers and everything, I just, I like New York. It's just, that's where funny lives. Stephen, I have a, I have a, it couldn't work because we're the same age, but I have a fantasy that Stephen Colbert is my uncle. And at Christmases when I was tiny, like he wouldn't turn up, but he would send presents just like, oh, this is from Uncle Stephen. It's all that's holding me together. There's an idea that Stephen Colbert is, is, is 106 and uh, was my uncle. <laughs> the um, Pfeiffer, uh, Pfeiffer's still alive. He's 89 years yeah. old. And there's, in fact, there's a, a film that's been newly released. He's got a, a graphic novel. He's got a, a number of graphic novels at this point. He did, uh, he did illustrations for Phantom Tollbooth. He wrote yeah, the screenplay my for- My favorite uh, book <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, he did the screenplay for Carnal Knowledge and Robert Altman's Popeye. Uh, but something he wrote in his memoir, mm. I was just thinking of when you were talking about your childhood, his mother always wanted him to go outside and play. And he was six, let's say, mm. and loved drawing and he was motivated to leave the house to go to the other children's houses and steal the newspapers so he could gain access to the funny pages mm -hmm. and the comics and the cartoons that didn't appear in the papers that his parents who were New Deal Democrats subscribed to if, if you wanted certain cartoons. And I don't know enough about this, this mm -hmm. world, but he talks a lot about it in the memoir. Um, you had to go to the kids' houses whose parents' politics were different than his own. Uh, but he says to his mom, who's always trying to get him to go outside, that um, why would he do that? If he's inside, he's the world's greatest cartoonist. If he goes outside, he's just a little kid that other kids make fun of. Um, and in fact, the, the, the boy that he drew, he, he won an Oscar at one point. Monroe is the kid's name. Yeah. And the premise of his, his uh, cartoon is Monroe is four and he's been drafted into the army. And he spends the rest of the sort of life of those strips just confronted with this mm -hmm. pretty funny juxtaposition of having to deal with all of the army personnel who ignore the fact that he's four years old. So this is a recording of Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer is somebody who has returned again and again and again to the Poetry Center, often in fact and this is, this is one of the wonders of the 92nd Street Y. The Poetry Center is one program center. There is a, a whole bunch of, of uh, wonderful audio recordings of politicians and celebrities and actors and all sorts of great stuff. And so Pfeiffer is somebody who's bounced around the different program centers. Um, this, is, this is one from the Poetry Center, but he's, he's been coming from uh, 71. This is his first Y appearance. And um, most recently in 2015, Neil Gaiman inter uh, interviewed him uh, on our stage. To, to give you a bit of, of context, uh, Pfeiffer had, he continued to write cartoon, uh, or, or to, to draw and publish cartoons in places like The Village Voice, but he'd written a play called Little Murders, which bombed in uh, New York City on Broadway. It then got picked up and had a very successful run in London. He tells a, a funny story in 
his memoirs about the censors in London and having to try and convince them that the character could say shit and uh, the, uh, the censors compromise and they allow him to say dog crap instead of shit. Which he doesn't. Which is worse. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't like the poetry, but he likes the conjuring of that image. Yeah, yeah. It's a big. The play is a big success in London, and then yeah. they want to do it downtown uh, in New York, and it you know runs forever. So this this is this is seventy. This is nineteen seventy one. He's he's done the script for Mike Nichols and Carnal Knowledge, but the film hasn't uh, it hasn't come out yet. Uh, this is January of nineteen seventy one. Which is neither here nor there, except to say that he's going to become even more famous um, that, than he was at this moment. And um, th these are, let me count them, these are seven clips between 30 seconds and two and a half minutes. The, the initial ones are kind of almost one-liners. They're, they're sort of him reading the speech bubbles from, I think I recognize all of them from strips, but they kind of work as a... Uh, as a, as a joke without a picture, and then yeah, then he, the, yeah. He, yeah, and then he then he's uh, he can be completely overtly political and analytical about current situations, and he's uh, very fluent and sensible, uh, not despairing, but interestingly cynical speaker. Uh, he, but he, he was a, a, a delegate at the Democratic convention in 1968 in Chicago, for <laughs> McCarthy, and um, tells tells um, well interesting stories about that experience. But yeah. in short. Gives up being a delegate to join the protesters on the streets outside once he sees what's going on. Um, this was a few, that was a few years before that. But mm -hmm. so these are seven clips, and I think the first three or four are as as Allison says him reading strips, and then other uh, clips are excerpts from a speech he gives that night. Maybe we'll just play them all the way through. Another lady. The phone woke me up in the middle of the night, and there, and there was this anonymous caller on the other end calling me dirty names. So I warmly and quietly said to him, I love you. And with a catch in his voice, he replied, thanks, I needed that. And then he said, all my life, all I ever got from women was rejection, emasculation, and indifference. Can you understand the hope it gives a man when he dials a blind number in the middle of the night and finds a stranger who offers him love? Then he asked me if I'd mind if he sent me flowers, and I said no, and he told me his name, Milton Gombo, who I divorced 12 years ago. So I said, you can't even make an obscene phone call right, you creep. Then I called him dirty names and hung up. This one is a man. Uh, if you are a political person, he says, and do not study history, your politics will provoke chaos, anarchy, and repression. If you are a political person and study history, your politics will provoke disillusion, apathy, and cynicism. So the question is whether to ignore history and be jailed or learn its lessons and be impotent. What a choice. When I went to school, I learned George Washington never told a lie. Slaves were happy on the plantation. The men who opened the West were giants. And we won every war because God was on our side. But when my kid goes to school, he learns George Washington was a slave owner. Slaves hated slavery. The men who opened the West committed genocide. 
and the wars we won were victories for U.S. imperialism. No wonder my kid's not an American. They're teaching him some other country's history. When I was a kid, I used to dream of what I wanted to be as a grown-up, a test pilot, a cowboy, a ball player. Now I'm 40, and I'm not a test pilot, I'm not a cowboy, I'm not a ball player, and I'm not a grown-up. <laughs> Whoever dreamed it would be this hard. In the current Evergreen Review, there's an interview with a very talented young filmmaker named Paul Williams. This may sound like a digression, but there are no more digressions. Uh, and in the course of the interview, Williams talks about being radicalized into a revolutionary by the experience of making his last movie called The Revolutionary, and that he found himself having this identity crisis. Should he pick up the gun or make more movies? And that he had to get his shit together, Williams said. Decide whether he was a filmmaker or a revolutionary. And after a long inner struggle, he got his shit together, and now he's in Hollywood. In, in any case, Williams' desires and mine aren't fundamentally that far apart. It's wanting an audience to stick around and multiply while you self-servingly examine their problems. Mostly, it felt to me as if I was watching a monumental struggle between Venusians and Martians. I was in a world full of funny green people where I wasn't part of the solution, and I wasn't part of the problem, and I wasn't even part of the culture because I had a serious drug problem. I didn't smoke dope. I still clung to booze. I don't make much noise about it. I'm not mystical about it. I just like to drink it. It tastes good. It makes me feel better. Sometimes it gives me ideas for cartoons. And it allows me to survive dozens of parties till 4 in the morning when ordinarily I'd be home at 11.30. But here were all these kids going around putting down booze and mysticizing grass. Now, I've had grass, and all it does is depress me and sometimes make me walk into closed doors. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean I don't think it shouldn't be legal. Everything else that depresses me is illegal. Is legal when I grass. <laughs> But what pains me and turns me bitter is the clickishness and snobbery of grass users, the need to find ethical, mystical, ideological, and political reasons to support something they use because they like to get stoned. Now, I know, and everyone else who drinks knows, he drinks out of weakness, out of a basic character defect. <laughs> we're, we're all a little apologetic when we overdo it. We never defend it. It would be nice to be able to do without it, but we can't. But users of grass are like people who live in San Francisco. They so overboost it, you begin to wonder what their true feelings are. But booze, too, got co-opted on the left. Grass became a revolutionary tool as thousands of kids got busted for possession. And we developed a generation of repressed white middle-class youth whose view of society and the law was based on what they smoked or swallowed or sniffed, and so assumed, with much romance and some legitimacy, the outlook of ghetto blacks. So while we, the booze-drinking left, talked about the threat of fascism, they, the grass-acid left, kids who had gone in the space of a couple of years from believing that cops were their protectors to the belief that cops were pigs, talked as if fascism was already here. 
The first shot of the film is this terrific-looking co-ed walking into a college mixer dressed exactly like Ann Rutherford in the Andy Hardy movies. And on the record player is Tommy Dorsey playing I'm Getting Sentimental Over You. And I had chills and tears in my eyes. And I found myself nostalgic for a period in my life that I absolutely hated. <laughs> But, but I wasn't nostalgic for my real past, I was nostalgic for my MGM past. The past that on Saturday afternoons back in the 40s I saw as my future, which took me out of the East Bronx and into these incredible movie mansions, the real-life duplicate of which I have seen only once at Hugh Hefner's house in Chicago, because he saw the same movies I did and had it built according to specifications. As you, as you can hear, he's just bang on it and just thinking about uh, uh, lots that we can identify with. And he's, he's, you know, he sounds, for 1971, he, he just sounds so now. You kind of sit there and think, wow, we just haven't moved an inch, have we? Which is the kind of interestingly depressing thing about reading his stuff now. Should we take a few questions? Yeah. There's a, there's a story in, in Pfeiffer's memoir about radicalizing Hugh Hefner. He's in Chicago for the 1968 convention, which of course featured all of these awful riots. And Hefner, at that point, Playboy Club is in Chicago, and he, he, uh, he refuses to leave his house, so he doesn't know what's going on. And Pfeiffer and some others convince him that uh, he should come out and, 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 and see for himself. And um, so he does. And it's evening time, and it seems the protesters have all gone home. But then they're walking down an alley, and the, the cops appear in front of them, and the cops appear behind them. And uh, one of them you know, grabs Hefner and throws him against the wall. And, uh, and Pfeiffer then goes on to say that you know, this, was, this was the moment that, that Hefner was radicalized. And what did he do with his radicalization? He moved to California. He did not... Uh, Take up arms. Mm. Anyway, audience questions or comments or yeah, yeah. anything of the sort. You mentioned about the uh, voice workshops. So um, Hitler, Himmler. So just throwing out their open goal question. So Trump, voice of American death, or naive businessman who just doesn't know any better. I will say. I, 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 Put a mark in this, because E. Cummings got there before. I mean, yeah, you, you're not really hearing intonation or a logical pattern of emphasis, uh, you know. So it just isn't really to do with meaning. It's it's just kind of mouth noises. But then again, you know, may or may not be senile. So who knows if he's remembering the beginning of his sentence when he reaches the end, or if he ever does reach the end. But yeah, I mean, there's this. Beautiful thing. Next to, of course, God, America, I love you, land of the pilgrims, and so forth. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early, my country, tears of centuries come and go, and no more, what of it? Why should we worry? In every language, even deaf and dumb, thy sons acclaim your glorious name. By Gari, by Jingo, by G, by Gosh, by Gum. Why talk of beauty? What could be more beautiful than these heroic, happy dead who? rushed like lions to the roaring slaughter. They did not stop to think, they died instead. Then shall the voice of liberty be mute? He spoke and drank rapidly a glass of water.
So, you know, incoherent jingoistic sound bites are not a new thing. Um, the thing that Pfeiffer is very good on is how quickly you forget that the bullshit is bullshit and somehow, you know, this idea, he's on Twitter, we have no power against him. Really? <laughs> Normally newspapers saying, we have no power against him. <sighs> he's a news machine, says a newspaper. This is allegedly a machine for producing news. It's uh, kind of interesting levels of infantilism. Certainly there, there are some people on Fox and there's that strange grinding woman who's on the internet who doesn't sound like a person at all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about truth. I mean, I'd kind of recommend it to anybody. It, just, it makes you breathe more and you get lots of oxygen and it's terribly good for your diaphragm which is always useful, but certainly if you're going to create language and it, if you're going to create uh, lines for people that they would be able to say, I mean, I've got most of my friends, I know lots of writers, but most of my friends are actors and I just sort of sit in the corner and cringe when they suddenly go, oh yeah, and then there was that thing where you're trying to just spit the lines out of the side of your mouth so you didn't have to taste them. Uh, or a friend of mine, she was in, there was a phase, it still might be ongoing, where you were filming British series in South Africa like uh, this wasn't the series, but uh, the Devil's Whore was in Africa, so all of these roundheads and cavaliers were kicking lepers out of the way and chasing across the savannah. So she, she was doing one of these things, and there's a scene where she had to cry, and the cameraman said, it's amazing, you would cry real tears, there's no glycerin, it's just astonishing that you were crying all through that scene. And she would say, no, it's astonishing, I'm not crying all through all of the scenes, this is <laughs> terrible. Um, so then, you know, you come back and you think, well, if, if anybody's going to have to say this, or, or in a way the reader is always saying what you've written in their head, it, it has to be that it's not causing them physical pain. Or obviously, if it's a, you know, if it's a bad line, it's, it's physically unmemorable. So the poor actor can't remember it because the body's rejecting it like a bit of iron filing in their bloodstream. Um, and again... And if you're in a writing group and you stand up and read your work, if you physically can't say it, if your body is refusing to let that happen to your mouth, maybe you're nervous, but I mean, quite often it's the, you stumble over the line that's incredibly unhandy and clanky. So there, there are things that are to do with the physical relationship between you and your voice, which, you know, why not have all, all of the bells and whistles playing for you? And I mean, I, lo I love doing sessions with writing students doing voice sessions and at the beginning they're kind of and at the end of it they're kind of yahoo I sound fantastic and it's like yeah it took three hours come on you know, it's not hard because obviously you know you're it's not uh, if I borrow this you know if, if you think a young writer is having all of the, to the Tom Stoppard problems and maybe you've got a lecture but probably not Ooh, maybe you throw all of your money over the floor you know it's, it's this kind of nightmare it's a living nightmare because you've got a sheet of paper that magnifies the fact that you can't even bloody see it because it's in a hurricane. And the more you think about it, the more... And you're doing something with your breath which you can't actually... Somehow it's not really working. You just want to die. I mean, the comics talk about dying. But, you know, in, in, in a comedy context, you can be absurd. In a, in a literary context, the one thing you can't be is absurd. You know, nobody can ever say, have you read the latest Snodgrass Fluber Blubble? Nobody will ever say no. You know, you can sit in tents in Edinburgh and make up authors. People will have read them. Um, so you can't be absurd. So you have no escape. Uh, and again, you know, if you're doing comedy, 
people will ask questions <laughs> like, why are you alive? And you have some kind of comeback because you're allowed to yell back and you have the mic. In a literary context, somebody can stand, do a disquisition, tell you that you're awful, and you just have to sit and smile. Because the etiquette is that you're actually there to be destroyed. <laughs> you know, if people are lovely, it's lovely. But, uh, you know, quite often you'll see people really not having a nice time. And it's, you know, it, people, are people all of the bits of them, their experiences join up. So you're always trying to make people a bit more robust. Or to realize quite often, if, if, you, if you're doing a reading and you make eye contact, the person who, who, who's going to be the mo most scared is the person who's being eye contacted. People don't realize that they're, you know, on stage, have a microphone, have a podium, the light shining on them. You're sort of in a dominant position, but writers are people who sit by themselves, do the 3 a.m. perfecting the conversation that you never had because you left and you couldn't think of a good comeback. They do it and you write it down and it's a short story. And then you give it to people that you'll never have to meet or confront at all. You know, we're those people. We're people who think things and that a long time later, people will never meet far away, might get to them, but we'll never know. We're totally isolated, but suddenly the job is to do with, no, you have to be there. Um, you have to be the other kind of person. And if you're Charles Dickens, that's great, but not necessarily. And again, I've been on stage with somebody who, who literally died who's an elderly guy who'd just come back to Canada from a European tour. And I sat and had multiple breakfasts with Miroslav Holub before he was going to come back from New Zealand to Europe and die. It's, it's physically hard on people. Uh, and again, people don't kind of have conversations about you looking after yourself. Is this okay? Will we continue the event? The guy who was chairing the event were very nice Canadian writer called Michael David Kwan had written, uh, my answers are this long, so we don't need many questions. Michael David Kwan had, had written a memoir about being in uh, Japanese-occupied China and was reading a bit about a Japanese soldier looking up, but he was in a tree playing being a boy in a tree, not being a spy. But this Japanese soldier spotted him, hefted his rifle, and he was talking about the, the wings of the angel of death fluttering over him. And then he, we just heard him, we were behind a curtain on stage, but behind a curtain, we just heard him say, oh, I don't feel very... Yeah, and then the audience going, 300 people watching somebody die. Uh, three doctors in the audience, is there a doctor in the house? Down they come. So we're hearing death rattle, bringing back, death rattle, bringing back. Um, but the, the guy who was chairing said, well, I had some very good segues between you guys, and we only had David, so maybe if we gave it half an hour, we could start again. At which point we said, no, everybody in the audience is phoning their relatives and crying and hugging each other, and <laughs> we're not going to go out there and do a reading. So, you know, the, the, there are a whole load of things that people don't talk about, about that life. So, yeah, God bless Michael David Kwan. It was a bit too much for him. <laughs> well, you know, it takes a physical toll on you having to do these. Stand and, of course, pe people drink to feel relaxed, but it's absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do. Everything that was out of control becomes more out of control. Cummings, uh, he talked about... Uh seeing friends like Crane and Thomas die, and he put himself on a, a 
by all accounts, successful three-drink-a-day regimen, which is what got him to the, I don't know, ripe old age of 70, maybe, when he passed. But back to Trump. Trump Trump is in the 92nd Street Wise audio archive. He, he, not in the Poetry Center's archive, we don't claim him, but he came for one of the memoirs he didn't write, gave a talk (laughs) in... um, Late 80s, early 90s, it's not a tape that will ever go on our website. Uh, he did not die. It's also been reported by one of my program colleagues who's been there uh, as long as I've been alive that uh, they had to move him to the smaller room because it was during, uh, yeah, not during uh, an ebb in his ascendant popularity and not many people turned up. Uh. And yeah, I'm sure his intonation would, would kind of, yeah, I can, I can see him reading Emily Dickinson. <laughs> His hair riding. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> Meanwhile, we're the opposite of that. Uh, we like words to mean things. Thank you, Alison. Yeah. And th- thank you, as I say, thank you for coming out on a beautiful evening when you could have been lying on your deck or your roof or in your courtyard garden. Sipping Pims. Or been at the movies. Yeah. Thank, thank you all for coming. I hope thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.